Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The song we're listening to, Genjer Genjer, comes from Indonesia. It tells the story of that country's modern history. Originally composed during the Second World War, the song became associated with the Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI, one of the world's largest. It was recorded in the 1960s by some of the country's leading pop stars. Then General Suharto seized power in a military coup and slaughtered the Indonesian left. Suharto's regime propagated a false story that PKI members had tortured a group of generals to death while singing Genjer Genjer. The song was banned by the new regime. Our guest today for a conversation about Indonesia's turbulent past and present is Michael Van. Michael is a professor of history at Sacramento State University. He specialises in the history of Southeast Asia. This is the second part of a two-part interview. In last week's episode, Michael spoke about Suharto's coup in the 1960s and the bloody repression of the PKI and the left-wing women's organisation Gerwani. When Suharto had consolidated his grip on power, what was the nature of the system that he called the New Order? And was there any space for opposition to his rule, whether in the political or the cultural fields? So the New Order is predicated on three pillars. First, there's the big lie about the PKI, that the PKI was trying to overthrow the government and establish a communist state and was a threat to the Indonesian nation and the Indonesian soul in many ways. Um, So that big lie is constantly repeated. But then there's also the promise of development. And there's quite a bit of foreign capital that comes in. And there's these large developmental projects, particularly in construction, uh, later tourism, oil, gas, mining, lumber, many extractive industries. While not all of that wealth is evenly distributed, on the contrary, a very small, hyper-rich elite are created under the new order, but it gives it gives something to the rhetoric that Suharto is is a developmental authoritarian, that the new order is um, a developmental regime. And then there's the kleptocracy, the way in which those tied to the Suharto family, those tied to the Indonesian officer corps, can use the economic growth of the new order for personal benefit. And that elite get buy-in to the new order dictatorship. For the general population, the new order claims that it's providing stability and tranquility. And the chaos of the Sukarno years are really played up throughout the new order, saying that, you know, you don't want to go back to the to the bad days of NASACOM, nationalism, communism, and and uh, and religion. You don't want to go back to Sukarno's chaos. Suharto assures stability and tranquility. Uh, what this meant is that no opposition was possible. Elections were very carefully managed. Suharto forms an alliance with the Golkar political movement, which essentially becomes his political party, and his candidates win the elections. And elections are held fairly regularly throughout the New Order, but they are far from free and fair. Meanwhile, the TNI, the, uh, the the officer corps, the Indonesian army, assumes 
an increasing number of domestic responsibilities. They run a number of businesses, and that provides lots of opportunities for graft. So the officer corps can enrich themselves, so they get buy-in. They get to take part in this kleptocracy. And the TNI, the Indonesian Army, replaces the responsibilities of the domestic police force, the police of the Republic of Indonesia, the Polri. And increasingly, it's the military that's in charge of day-to-day policing in cities around Indonesia. That really gives a sense of an internal military occupation of the country. After the crackdown on the PKI and the unions, there's crackdown on students uh, in the early 1970s. Ethnic Chinese are cracked down on. There's a move against street thugs in the early 1980s in the so-called Petrus killings or the mysterious killings where petty criminals would be found murdered on the street with their bodies on display. In many ways, this prefigures what Duterte has been up to in the Philippines in recent years. And then in the 1970s and the 1980s, the New Order regime moves against Islamist groups. Some of the remnants of Darul Islam, that um, oppositional Islamist movement, form small uh, cells. There's a number of uh, terror attacks, a hijacking. And there's some speculation that maybe Indonesian intelligence encouraged these, um, these attacks as a way to justify military rule. And then all of the uh, the new order is saturated with um, sinophobia that works like anti-Semitism in the European context in sort of a populist sense, whipping up popular sentiment against Chinese businesses, even though the Suharto regime is very closely tied to a number of uh, prominent ethnic Chinese businessmen. They use anti-Chinese sentiment to get the middle and lower classes angry against the Chinese, scapegoat the Chinese for any economic problems. And there's a a series of anti-Chinese outbursts that are very similar to um, anti-Semitic pogroms in the European context. And then there's there's a state misogyny. The New Order promotes um, Ibuism. Um, Ibu means mother. And this is the idea that the, the woman's place is in the home. And this is part of a reaction to the culture war of the early 1960s. The New Order state continues with a lot of misogynist, anti-Gerwani propaganda, blaming feminists for the murder and alleged torture of the generals. Gerwani is banned as an organization. Anybody associated with that would be in deep, deep trouble. And in its place, an organization is promoted called Dharma Wanita. And Dharma Wanita means... uh, women's path or women's duty, women's sort of moral responsibility. And Dharma Wanita was an organization for the wives of Indonesian bureaucrats and officers. And the Indonesian women would move up in the hierarchy of Dharma Wanita based upon their husband's promotions. So it's really institutionalizing patriarchy. And it's this was a way to sort of channel and redirect, you know, possible feminist uh, sentiments or, or actions from the um, middle class and upper class Indonesian women. Uh, meanwhile, there's a culture war engaged by the New Order regime against popular village culture. The vibrant village culture of the countryside was deemed as vulgar and maybe a little too popular and a little too closely linked to the PKI. 
So uh, local popular dance and song is suppressed, and the state promotes Javanese court culture, feudal culture from central Java that's very conservative, very refined, and very restrained. And I think that serves as an amazing metaphor for the New Order's cultural war on the, um, the lower classes of Indonesia. There's strict censorship on the press and on the film. You could not import Chinese printed material into Indonesia. Films are very closely censored. There's absolutely no sexuality in film, but uh, violence was okay. Violence was, uh, was tolerated in Indonesian films. And this leads to a golden age of Indonesian horror films in the 1980s under the New Order. Horror was really the only possible creative outlet for Indonesian filmmakers. And I would also argue that this is sort of indicates the way in which the collective culture is processing the trauma of the mass murder of the 60s and the various forms of repression in the 1970s and the 1980s. There's also a, a, a huge boom in popularity of heavy metal music. And the, uh, the Indonesian love for heavy metal, I think, is very much tied again to this sense of sort of processing trauma. One of the Western rock groups that attracted a dedicated fan base was Deep Purple. The following clip comes from a documentary about the band's notorious visit to Jakarta in 1975. Deep Purple landed in Jakarta. They were the first Western rock band to tour Indonesia. The Indonesian fans were ecstatic, but the band's timing couldn't have been worse. A few weeks before, five Australian journalists had been brutally executed in Balabo by Indonesian troops, who were poised, ready to invade East Timor. US President Gerald Ford and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger were on a secret visit to Jakarta to meet President Suharto on the day Deep Purple arrived. Regional politics was on a knife edge. Jakarta was on high alert and Deep Purple's private jet was diverted. We fly into the jungle and the pilot is telling me later that you couldn't see anything but jungle and there was a small airstrip in Jakarta. Tens and tens of thousands. We're the first band to play there from America and England. In the convoy with our cars were tanks, a couple of army tanks and army people walking on the side, people lining the highway. It was really odd, over the top odd. The venue was supposed to be a 15,000 people venue, but it was 50,000 seat soccer stadium. But there was 125,000 people per show crammed in there. Something was wrong here. Promoter was weird. They'd sold two nights uh, instead of one. And the army were the security. And our management found out that we were only going to be paid the original sum that we had agreed to go for to play to 20,000 people. It was that that led to the death of, of one of those minders. Patsy was dead. He had fallen uh, down an elevator shaft six floors off. Murder, which is what it was. It was not an accident. And, you know, the next thing I know, all four of us are standing in front of this crazed Idi Amin-type guy, fully decorated. He was spinning a gun on the table. And I'm thinking, well, he's going to shoot us. The experience of Deep Purple couldn't deter other bands from coming to Indonesia. The music we're listening to comes from a live recording of another huge concert by the Brazilian group Sepultura in 1992. 
Another aspect of the New Order is Premanism. And the Preman were the, the Indonesian street thugs and organized criminals. This could range from anything to small organized street gangs to groups like Pemuda Pancasila, which was ostensibly a political mass organization for the far right that served as some of the killers in 1965 and 1966. If you've seen Joshua Oppenheimer's film, The Act of Killing, the Pemuda Panchasila are featured quite prominently there in their orange camouflage. And they get a free hand in running street crime as long as they're pledging support for Suharto and the New Order regime. Uh, There's also a number of strongmen brought from East Timor, that had close ties to the Indonesian special forces officers. And they would be used as strong men in the streets of Jakarta and, and a political auxiliary for, for various purposes. And then, as I said, the, the New Order regime is an incredible kleptocracy. The Suharto regime becomes fabulously wealthy. After Suharto's uh, pushed out of power in 2004, Transparency International listed him as the world's most corrupt autocrat with somewhere between 15 and $35 billion. Ferdinand Marcos came in a distant second with only 5 to $10 billion. Mobuto Sesi Seko, uh, formerly of Zaire, could only manage uh, a paltry $5 billion, putting him in third place. So the amount of money taken by the Suharto regime, the Suharto cronies, the Suharto family is just astounding. Suharto's wife, who was known as Ibu Tien, mother uh, or Madam Tien, was derisively called Ibu Tien Percent, playing on the English 10%, that Ibu Tien Percent would take 10% of every transaction for private gain. How did the regime deal with the movements for independence in areas like West Papua and East Timor? Well, first off, the regime created the need for independence movements in West Papua and East Timor by uh, invading and occupying uh, these areas. Now, Sukarno had initially occupied West Papua. So this is the, the western half of the larger island of New Guinea, not ethnically Malay, not historically part of precursors to the Indonesian state, but a Dutch colonial possession. And Sukarno argued that as an anti-colonial figure, he needed to liberate all of the former Dutch colonies. And the Dutch held on to Western Papua into the early 1960s until Sukarno and, and also the Kennedy administration eventually forced the Dutch to hand over Papua to the Indonesian government. Again, there's no real linguistic, cultural, historical connection of this region to a government centered in Java. Now, Suharto inherited West Papua when the new order comes to power. And in 1969, Suharto oversaw a clearly fake plebiscite where the uh, Papuans supposedly overwhelmingly supported integration into Indonesia. And this almost immediately led to the creation of the Free Papua Movement, or the OPM, And the OPM for years has engaged in small-scale attacks against things like Freeport Mines, which controls the largest gold mine in the world and is an American holding. In response to the the low-scale activity of the Free Papua movement, the Indonesian army has violently repressed 
the Papuan people and really sealed off these provinces to any outside observers. And for decades, the TNI, the Indonesian army, was able to operate with impunity. Only recently have we been getting better information out of Papua due to the arrival of cell phones and cell phone video. So every couple of months, a cell phone video is is being leaked showing incredible TNI atrocities in Papua. Situation is was arguably even worse in East Timor. East Timor, uh, half of this island, deep in the heart of eastern Indonesia, was a Portuguese colony up until the early 1970s. And it wasn't until, until the end of the Salazar dictatorship that the new post-dictorial Portugal agreed to grant independence to East Timor. And East Timor is, again, historically, ethnically, uh, linguistically, in terms of religion, not really a part of this greater Indonesian project. The people of East Timor um, at the time spoke either Portuguese or more commonly Titum or other local languages. They were either Catholic or animist. They were not part of the the larger um, Islamic community of Southeast Asia. Um, so it really was not part of you know, this imagined community of the Indonesian nation. However, Suharto was greenlit to invade East Timor by President Ford and Henry Kissinger. There was a meeting in early December 1975 where Suharto made the argument to Ford and Kissinger that unless Indonesia invaded, then East Timor could go communist. And keep in mind that this meeting is in December of 1975. What's happened in April of 1975? The uh, Saigon has fallen to the North Vietnamese. The Khmer Rouge have seized uh, Phnom Penh. And in terms of the, the Cold War chessboard, both Ford and Kissinger saw that it was important to stop any further communist advances. So this gave Suharto not just a free hand to invade East Timor, but they also gave him the military support with weaponry and with funding. And it really was a bipartisan support for the Indonesian occupation of East Timor for the next couple of decades. Both the Ford administration, as well as the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, Bush one and the Clinton administration all gave uh, funds and military aid to the Indonesian army to give them a free hand in the occupation of East Timor. We welcome good friends back to the White House, friends who have been too long absent. In the years since your last visit, President Suardo... In 1982, Ronald Reagan paid tribute to Suharto's leadership at a White House banquet in his honour. ...where we both share so many interests. Yet during these dynamic and often turbulent years, there have been elements of stability important elements. Foremost among these has been the wise and steadfast leadership which you have given Indonesia since 1966. Out of a period of uncertainty and disorder, you have guided your country into the forefront of the Asian community of nations and made its influence felt throughout the world. A second factor of stability since the 1960s, Mr. President, has been the excellent bilateral relations which have existed between Indonesia and the United States. Our relationship has stood the test of time in a changing world. It's firmly rooted in mutual respect and a clear-sighted recognition of where the interests of both our nations lie. And the invasion was almost immediately genocidal. 
Estimates are that perhaps as much as 20% of the population of East Timor was killed during the occupation. This would be just under 180 or 190,000 dead. Uh, There's wide-scale repression of the language and culture and an effort to Indonesianize the uh, the Timorese people by promoting Bahasa Indonesia, the national language, and uh, repressing aspects of local culture. And the Indonesian army recruited local quislings, local collaborators as strongmen to spy on and harass the opposition. In 1994, the Australian journalist John Pilger travelled undercover to East Timor and recorded a documentary called Death of a Nation. What happened here 18 years ago happened mostly in secret, and this filming is being done in secret without the approval or knowledge of the Indonesian authorities. Journalists and independent observers are not welcome in East Timor. Two Australian television teams, including two Britons, were murdered here in 1975 by the Indonesian army for trying to breach the wall of silence that the regime in Jakarta and its Western allies had built around East Timor. As a result of the Indonesian invasion and occupation, some 200,000 people died here. That's a third of the population, or proportionately more than were killed in Cambodia under Pol Pot. They were killed resisting the invasion. They were murdered without reason. They died in concentration camps, and they starved. Perhaps genocide is too often used these days, but by any standards, that's what's happened here. And it happened mostly beyond the reach of the TV camera and the satellite dish, and with the connivance and complicity of Western governments, the same governments that were prepared to go to war against Saddam Hussein, but were not prepared in almost parallel circumstances to stop a rapacious invader that had broken every provision in the United Nations Charter and had defied no less than 10 United Nations sanctioning resolutions calling on it to withdraw from East Timor. Pilger made Death of a Nation for a British television channel and he discussed the sale of British fighter jets to Indonesia that were being used in East Timor. This segment includes a breathtakingly candid interview with the Conservative politician Alan Clark. In 1991, the government of John Major urged its European partners to cut aid to regimes that violated human rights. In the same year, Major shook hands with Indonesia's weapons chief, B.J. Habibi. Later, the government announced a billion-pound deal for more Hawk aircraft, despite the devastation they were causing. The um, point of selling Hawk aircraft to Indonesia is to give jobs to people in this country. And there is no doubt in my mind that there is nothing that a Hawk aircraft can do to suppress the people in East Timor. It is not an aircraft that is suitable for that purpose, and we have guarantees from the Indonesians that they would not be used for internal suppression. Alan Clark, you, you were Minister of Defence when the sale of Hawk aircraft were being negotiated and finalised with Indonesia, and your colleagues have talked about getting guarantees from the Indonesians that the Hawks would not be used for oppressive purposes against civilians and, in fact, in East Timor. I mean, what, what exactly are these guarantees? I mean, that's really what I'm trying well, to I work out. Asked, I never asked for guarantees of that kind. That must have been something that the Foreign Office did. Um, 
before the IDC or whatever it was that, that mm. uh, whatever committee it is that considers. Uh, so guarantees possible contract. or not? I mean, uh, would you would you say getting guarantees from a government like the Indonesian government? Uh, well, a guarantee is a guarantee is worthless from any government, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, mm. I wouldn't even bother with it. But it's, mm. you may want it. Uh, it may look um, good in the formula. You know, that's a foreign office matter, not an MAD matter. Mm. We'd never ask someone for guarantees. Mm. I mean, as far as the Hawks were concerned, uh, there was a great deal of talk from all the ministries in British aerospace that they were merely trainers. I mean, that, that, a lot has been made of that. No, they weren't telling the truth. Well, that's just a label you put on it. I mean, they are trainers. But you said merely trainers. They're, they're, the Hawks are training aircraft. Um, but it's actually ex an exceptionally effective aircraft and can be used in a whole variety of different roles. Well, it can be easily it, converted, it, too. Uh, as the Indonesian's Mr Habibi, yeah. a man you know, uh, yeah. he said that... Uh, Oh, yes, it's a training aircraft uh, with his tongue in his cheek, but we can easily convert it, in effect. Sure, it can, it can be converted anyway. The, the Hawk is, is dual use with a capital D. In fact, part of the deal with Indonesia is conversion training to a light attack aircraft. And Indonesia's weapons chief, Habibi, has made it clear the Hawk, he said, will be used not only to train pilots, but for ground attack. Did it ever bother you personally that this British equipment was causing such mayhem and human suffering? No, not the slightest. Never entered my head. I mean, I, you tell me that this was happening. I, I didn't uh, hear about it well, or know about it. Well, even if I hadn't told you it was happening, the fact that we supply highly effective equipment to a regime like that then is not a consideration as far as you're concerned. Not it's not right. a personal consideration. No, not at all. I asked the question because you, I've, I read that you were a, a, a vegetarian mm. uh, and you quite uh, seriously and uh, concerned about the way animals are killed. Yeah. Doesn't that concern uh, extend to the way humans, albeit foreigners, are killed? Curiously not, no. After the fall of Suharto in 1998, the... Timorese were given a plebiscite as to whether or not they would uh, they wanted to remain in Indonesia. And despite really tricky and misleading ballots, the Timorese people overwhelmingly voted for independence. And this was despite open intimidation by some of these premons, some of these street thugs who uh, were organized into motorcycle gangs and openly intimidated villages and towns that may vote for independence. And the Indonesian army promised revenge should the Timorese vote for independence. After the vote for independence, the UN observers left. And then almost the next day, the Indonesian army went on an orgy of uh, destruction and murder, where a significant portion of every building in East Timor was damaged, killings in the street, and huge numbers of Timorese became refugees within their own country. And this was revenge by the Indonesian army for being kicked out after almost 25 years of occupation. Up in the, the northwest of Indonesia is the province of Aceh. Importantly, this was one of the last areas that the Dutch were able to conquer and never really pacify this area well into the early 20th century. And an independence movement began to form 
in the 1970s and the 1980s, the, the GAM, calling for regional independence or, or autonomy and for an, the right to create a local government based on their interpretation of Sharia. So it's a regional slash Islamist rebellion. And these these were the three areas of regional uh, trouble for the New Order regime, West Papua, East Timor, and Aceh. What were the causes of Suharto's eventual fall from power in the late 1990s? And can we describe what happened at that time as an authentic revolution? So Suharto finally fell due to the economic collapse in Southeast Asia in 1997. Um, During the Cold War, they talked about the domino theory of communist dominoes knocking each other over. Well, in 1997, we saw the domino theory redux of capitalist dominoes, uh, really poorly constructed financial regimes knocking each other over as the the Thai bot, uh, the Thai currency went out of control and, and loans came due. And this impacted all the countries of Southeast Asia. Arguably, the impact was the most intense in Indonesia. As the rupiah, the currency crashed and fuel prices jumped overnight, suddenly Suharto's economic justification for the dictatorship was destroyed. And this really pulled the rug out from underneath his legitimacy. Student activists, many of which had been active pre-1997, took to the streets and began to uh, use the economic crisis to push for political change. Some of Suharto's cronies, like uh, General Prabowo, who will later on be a presidential candidate, took it upon themselves to disappear some of these student activists and, and scores of them are disappeared. Um, some are tortured. Some, we, we don't know quite what happened to them. Several are murdered. It also seems likely that in this chaos, Prabowo and some of the other groups in, in the Indonesian intelligence services deployed agent provocateurs who tried to provoke demonstrations. And there's there's firing on student demonstrations. And really the, the public violence against the student demonstrations further destroyed Suharto's credibility. And very quickly, in the uh, late spring of 1998, the House of Cards came crashing down, and Suharto was forced out of power. But importantly, Suharto is removed, but his cronies stay in power. All of those officers, all of those New Order bureaucrats who made the Suharto regime possible stay in power. So there, there is no move like in Iraq to debothify Iraq uh, by the American government. There's nothing like denazification of Germany. So there's no de-Suhartoization. Sure, Suharto's pulled out of power, his family is pulled out of power, but the rank and file New Order bureaucrats stay in power. Soon after the fall of Suharto, the Indonesian novelist Pramodia Anantatur came to the United States for the first time at the age of 74. He spoke to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! As Tur explained, his most celebrated literary works were composed while he was a prisoner of the Suharto regime. As soon as I had finished one section, I'd, I'd hide it as quickly as possible, for I knew that it would become my both my judge and executioner if, if they were found. So I never had the chance to read them again. I hid them, and then, and then whenever possible, had them smuggled off the island. Why take the risk? 
Ever since I was incarcerated, anything I wrote was destroyed. I felt that I had to put down in writing an historical record, make something so that the future generations would know. Had I not been able to do that, or had I not done that at all, would have meant that my, I did not exist. Why were you imprisoned on Budo Island? Up to the present date, I still don't know why. There was never a court. There was never a trial. There was never an official charge lodged against me. And of course, no opportunity to ever defend myself. And how many years were you there? I was incarcerated for 14 years and two months, 10 of them on, on Buru Island. What kept you going? I think it was my, my desire, my need to fight injustice that kept me going. Goodman asked Tor how Suharto had stayed in power for so long and what had changed since his resignation. I myself feel it's because... Um, he has the power of and has been working with uh, multinational, multinational capitalists. He's just the gopher for multinational corporations. The students may have toppled Suharto and, put Habib, and, and Habibi may have come to power, but Habibi is nothing more than, than a continuation of the same new order. The people, the bureaucracy, the administration, there's, there's been no change so far. You have announced your support for one political party, the PRD. Do these elections really have any meaning? For myself, I'd say no. As long as the, as long as the same bureaucracy remains in place, there's not going to be any change. When will there be change? Well, that's going to depend on the young. You just simply cannot trust the older generation anymore. So why should we trust what you're saying? I'm still, I'm still young, for God's sake. I'm a member of the youth generation. So we go into this new era after 98 of this restoration of democracy, which is known as reformasi, but it's the same people in charge. And they still continue to promote ideas like the New Order's big lie about the Indonesian Communist Party. There's no reform of public education. There's no revision of the curriculum. So these same New Order propaganda points are taught in public schools. And Joshua Oppenheimer's made two really wonderful films. Most people have seen The Act of Killing, but the follow-up film, The Look of Silence, which is a very different film, has some very important scenes shot in a classroom where he shows Indonesian school children, and it probably was shot about um, 2010, 2011, 2012. And these Indonesian school children are learning the same New Order propaganda points that their parents would have been taught a generation earlier. So it's important to keep in mind here that the, the, the forces that did the killing in 1965 remain in power after 1965, rule throughout the new order, are able to rec the, replicate themselves, really create a new generation. And then those um, bureaucrats survive into uh, 1998 and into this new era of reformasi or democratic Indonesia. So 
you know, to to call this a a true revolution, no, it's it's not. It it is it is a transition from military dictatorship to to democracy. Yes, but the state is not purged. Um, I think it's in some ways very parallel to what happens in Germany after the fall of the Kaiser and the um, the Second German Empire and into the Weimar Republic. Sure, the leadership has changed, but the judiciary hasn't really changed. The officer corps hasn't been purged. So you have loyalists to the previous regime in this new um, democratic situation. And and we, we, we see this continuing in all sorts of ways. Um, even though Suharto's pulled from power and disgraced, his family maintains really important economic and political connections. The Indonesian army was supposed to go back to the barracks after 1998, but the Indonesian officer corps has been very reluctant to give up wealth and power. It's debatable how much power they've handed over to the police of the Republic of Indonesia, the Polri. Um, there's been numerous examples of the army fighting with the police in small towns and even in some of the major cities of Indonesia, such as Yogyakarta and, and Jakarta, and fighting over things like the black market in petrol, in gasoline, or um, bar fights that could get out of out of control. There was an event in 2013 when I lived in Yogyakarta where there was a bar fight between soldiers from a special forces unit and a number of local police officers and it resulted in 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 a death and the um the police officers were arrested and thrown in jail for killing the the soldier and a few days after they'd been in jail uh, the special forces units raided the prison and executed all the suspects in the prison this shows that the indonesian army can still operate with uh with impunity and then there's the the attack on various human rights activists. Probably the most significant was the murder of Munir Saeed Talib, uh, who is a human rights activist who uh, won the Right Livelihood Award in the year 2000. And he was investigating the special forces, uh, the Kapasis, uh kidnappings of activists. And his house was bombed in 2001. And then uh, when Munir was on a flight, to Amsterdam in 2004, he was poisoned and died. And it's very likely that Indonesian state intelligence was involved in some way in in the murder of Munir. More recently, there's been uh, attacks on activists working for the people of Papua. There's a human rights attorney named Veronica Coman, who is now in Australia where she faces regular threats. And just this week, in November of 2021, her family has been uh, been attacked in Indonesia with bombings on her house. So the uh, reactionary forces around the Suharto regime continue to operate in a new democratic Indonesia with impunity. And you see the survival of premanism or of politically tied street thugs and organized crime, groups such as Pemuda Pancasila, who, again, were profiled in Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing. They're a paramilitary group with a significant organized crime presence. They continue to operate in um, Reformasi Indonesia and are even praised by figures such as the vice president, Yusuf Kala. Um, this is a scene, again, in Joshua Oppenheimer's film. And they've got ties to very high-ranking politicians, and they can lend their their muscle 
to support these um, uh, these politicians. And then we also see the survival of the figure of Tommy Suharto. Uh, Tommy Suharto was uh, one of Suharto's children. He became a very wealthy businessman under the new order due to his family connections. At one point, he had a controlling share in Lamborghini. As Indonesia moved into the post-Suharto era, there were various attempts to bring him to trial for corruption. And he ordered the contract killing of one of the judges that was investigating him. Eventually, he was uh, was a- arrested after being on the lam for a number of months. And through a complicated plea agreement, he agreed to serve some time, uh, but got early release. Uh, he was only in jail for a few years for this contract murder. And there's even some speculation as to whether or not he really saw the inside of a jail cell. There's lots of rumors that he spent his time in the, the presidential suite of the Hyatt Regency in, in Jakarta or on golf courses. And then in a, in a truly astounding moment, after he had, um, he had served time, the Garuda in-flight magazine, so the in-flight magazine of the, uh, the national airlines, one of the, one of the more banal publications in the Indonesian press, right? This is the in-flight magazine. They referred to, uh, Tommy Suharto as a convicted murderer and he sued Garuda Airlines because he said he was not convicted of murder. He was convicted of contract killing. And he won the lawsuit, got some monetary compensation, and forced the Garuda in-flight magazine to publish a retraction every issue for uh, for a year or two. So he's he's tried to enter politics and has, has failed, but remains a, a political and economic player in Indonesia. This despite uh, his open track record of criminality and um, his connections to the, the previous New Order regime. So no, no, no. The um, the fall of Suharto was not a true political revolution. Yes, there's a new form of representative government, but the rank and file of the state was not purged. There was no de-Suhartoization of Indonesia. In 2018, Al Jazeera interviewed Tommy Suharto about his efforts to rehabilitate the family name. He adamantly denied all claims about his father's corruption. Al Jazeera also spoke to a man who'd been a political prisoner under Suharto. After what happened to you during the Suharto regime, the torture, the kidnapping, how do you feel that his son, Tommy Suharto, is now going back into politics? First, I think that's democracy that we have now, which is the result of uh, our struggle two decades ago. And everyone has a democratic right to including to establish political party. But uh, I believe that uh, the idea of reviving the teaching, the practice of Suharto will never be accepted by the Indonesian people. What will they sell to the people? There is no peace in Suharto time. Prosperity? There is no prosperity as in, 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 in Suharto time. The prosperity that they, you know, they sell to people is fake. You know? That's not, that is not true. That at, when they say that at the time the price is very cheap, of course at that time it was very cheap also because of the value of money now is higher, but also because why it was cheap at the time is because of the foreign uh, debt, you know the subsidy, huge subsidy which make us not able to do anything uh, at the time. And yeah at the time it's like orderly peace because we are silenced, you know. 
because every sailing in our house is like the intelligent. Even the, the people cannot criticize the government even in the family during they are having uh, dinner, for example. What have been the main developments or the most important developments in the politics of Indonesia since the fall of Suharto and the transition to the new system? And has the most recent presidency of Jokowi constituted a genuine break with the old political guard? Yeah, so in the, the first um, decade or so of uh, Reformasi Indonesia, the decade and a half, you saw the continuation of the old political guard. A uh, number of candidates that were tied in various ways to the new order. Sukarno's daughter at one point is president, but she's removed. But Sukarno's uh, daughter, Megawati Sukarno Putri, did not have that same uh, radicalism of her father. And she's very much a part of the, um, the this governing power structure. And then, then there was this dramatic change when um, this candidate who came from outside of the political old guard, uh, Joko Widodo, uh, he's known as Jokowi. That's sort of his, his political nickname. And he had been mayor of a medium-sized town in central Java, Surakarta or Solo, from about 2005 to 2012. And then he was elected governor of Jakarta in 2012. And governor of Jakarta is really the stepping stone to the presidency. So he went from being a regional mayor to governor of the largest city. And then in 2014, he ran for and won the presidency. And this was huge. This was greeted as this dramatic sea change because um, Jokowi seemingly had no ties to corruption. Um, and he... in. You know, in terms of corruption, he's actually got a pretty good record. Um, the only really public scandals around him have been that twice he's been given uh, memorabilia from the band Metallica, the heavy metal band. And he's he's a huge heavy metal fan. He was given a guitar uh, used by one of the Metallica band members. And then later he was given uh, a box set of uh, rare Metallica albums. And um, he handed the guitar, when accused of corruption, he handed the guitar over to the people of Jakarta, and it was put on public display because this is a, a heavy metal-loving nation. And then he paid the fine on the uh, the box set of albums. So he seemingly has this uncorruptible air about him and is this breath of fresh air. And, and some of my Indonesian friends in um, 2012, 2013, 2014 were talking about him as an Indonesian Obama. He's an outsider. He breaks the mold. He's, he's breaking through the barriers. He's not part of that old elite. But I think that many of my friends now view him still as an Indonesian Obama because he has profoundly disappointed his most progressive supporters. And he's really had trouble moving on corruption and really making changes in Indonesia, primarily because these old ghosts of the new order are still lurking about and are now increasingly tied to Jokowi. So Jokowi's main political rival in two presidential elections was the former General Prabowo. And this was the general that was disappearing students in 1998. He was the son-in-law of Suharto, married into the family, uh, divorced after the fall of Suharto. He used to run the special forces. He's trained at Fort Benning. And twice he was presidential candidate in 2014 and 2019. 
and has made openly fascist statements. In an interview with the journalist Alan Nairn, he, he said that some fascism might be good for Indonesia, and he he would not hide from that uh, that label. And in the lead up to the most recent election, he had a campaign ad with a number of Indonesian heavy metal uh, rock stars, where they um, they took a Queen song uh, "We Will Rock You" and put his name into it. And so it was this heavy metal campaign ad that had this open fascist imagery where one of the main uh, musicians singing the song is wearing essentially a Nazi uniform. And um, he's as openly criticized democratic Indonesia. And it was an open question whether or not democracy would survive in Indonesia had he been elected in 2014 and 2019. He challenged both elections, provoking a constitutional crisis in 2014 and sparking deadly riots in 2019. Al Jazeera reported on the protests orchestrated by Jokowi's defeated opponent in 2019. Early on, police outnumbered protesters, but later the crowds grew. These are supporters of Prabowo Subianto, who ran against President Joko Widodo in last month's presidential election and the previous one. They cheated on us in 2014. We don't want it to happen again. Enough is enough. Getting justice through the courts is impossible with the government we have, so we come here. We don't care about our safety. We are prepared to give our lives. Just like the day before, on Wednesday, the protests turned violent as night fell. Fireworks and other objects were thrown at the police, who fired tear gas and water cannon. Police say they have arrested dozens of people. I would like to say the series of events that we saw earlier today is not a spontaneous incident, but it is an incident by design, a set-up incident. As protests spread to at least two other cities, President Joko Widodo has called for calm, but also issued a warning. I will work together with anyone to advance this country. But I will not tolerate anyone who disrupts the security, democratic processes, and unity of our beloved nation. So this is this is Jokowi's main opponent, right? And despite all this bad behavior, two years ago in 2019, Jokowi appointed him Minister of Defense, put him in charge of the TNI, of the Indonesian army. And clearly, Jokowi is under tremendous political pressure to work with the old guard. You also see this in another general who's still lurking about, Wiranto. And Wiranto was uh, Suharto's aide-de-camp in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He was Minister of Defense during the fall of Suharto. He ran the special forces uh, when students were being disappeared. And perhaps more significantly, he was head of the military during the withdrawal from East Timor and during the um, the violence against the Timorese, where scores of villages were razed, uh, hundreds of buildings were destroyed in the capital, and some half a million refugees were displaced. Both Wiranto and Proboo have been charged as war criminals. At various points, they've been uh, barred entry into the United States. And uh, Wiranto also oversaw a massacre in Papua in 1998, the Biak massacre. But just like Prabowo got political appointments, Wiranto has received political appointments from Jokowi. And he is currently on 
he is currently the chair of the Presidential Advisory Council. So brought into Jokowi's inner circle, even though he seemingly represents the everything that Jokowi's presidency was supposed to be fighting against. And then in, in one of the most shocking moments um, in August 2021, one of the Timorese Preman, uh, Rico uh, Guterres, who worked very closely with Prabowo, he ran um, one of these Preman militias that terrorized the Timorese people into voting against independence, known street thug and, and supplier of muscle for political purposes. President Jokowi awarded him the Bintang Jasi Utama, the, the first class star of service for his alleged bravery and courage in times of adversity. So this guy represents some of the worst violence committed by the Indonesian state, the New Order state, against East Timor, yet Jokowi is giving him these national medals. So it's really clear that Jokowi is not free from the New Order's old guard. And they're still controlling his actions. And the final question I want to ask, perhaps the first part of it, is, is implied from some of the things that you've already said. But is it meaningful to describe Indonesia today as being a true democracy? And if not, what kind of forces might be able to press for a more genuine, authentic democratization of political life in the country? Well, I mean, my answer to that is is sort of cynical. You know, yes, yes, it's a democracy, but run by an oligarchy like other democracies in the world, in Southeast Asia and in in the United States. Um, The influence of capital on political power is so strong. I think what's really astounding, though, about the Indonesian democracy is the way in which uh, some of these figures seem to cross party lines and um, these strange alliances are formed, such as between Jokowi and Prabowo and Wiranto, um, giving them a high office within his, in his administration. There was much hope that the Indonesian government would be able to reform itself and to uh, to take on corruption. In 2003, the Corruption Eradication Commission, the KPK, was formed. And there was a lot of optimism about the KPK. But in the past few years, despite a few victories, it now seems really gutted and ineffective. And it seems that the 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 old guard of the new order has really sort of taken the power away from the KPK. Hopefully, there's a new generation of better informed and more critical youth. Um, they're not getting the critical education in the Indonesian school system, and you know, in some ways, the internet is serving them well. There is access to more critical uh, information on Suharto on the new order. But obviously, with you know access to the internet, that's not guaranteed because there's just as much information out there promoting uh, the Suharto line and promoting new order uh, new order patterns. But I, I think that for the younger generation of activists who are internet savvy, there's there's some optimism. I think some of the the brightest uh, hopes are with um, the human rights lawyers. Uh, I talked about the way in which Munir was assassinated in 2004, but there's a number of other human rights attorneys who are taking on the worst abuses of the Indonesian state. Uh, Veronica Komen is currently working on um, issues in Papua and and, and risking serious threat to herself and to her family. You know, despite, uh, 
you know, the, the optimism I may have for this new generation for some of these attorneys, there's also this resurgence of identity politics. And in particular, Islamic identity politics has been weaponized in the past few years. Uh, one of uh, Jokowi's uh, main political protégés, uh, who had been the vice governor of Jakarta and became the, the governor of Jakarta, was a man known as Ahok, who happened to be ethnic Chinese. And a video clip was put out, a uh, cell phone video, that was manipulated and it seemingly showed Ahok was committing blasphemy. Um, anybody who's seen the video, I, I think, could see that it's clearly edited and the comments were taken out of context. Yet this led to a massive identity politics campaign against Ahok. And um, Ahok ran for re-election uh, to being the governor of Jakarta and was defeated. And it really was, he really was defeated by these identity politics. And then after his defeat, he was sentenced to jail for blasphemy. And the judges gave him a sentence that was longer than what the prosecutors were asking for. Um, and I think this really has a chilling effect on anybody who dares challenge the, uh, the Indonesian political system. So Max Lane, the great scholar of Indonesia and, and translator of uh, some of the most important works of Indonesian fiction. Um, he described Indonesia as the country without a left. And I think this is very accurate. Um, and until Indonesia can establish a left oppositional politics, and perhaps more importantly, reestablish a meaningful labor movement, Indonesian democracy is not going to be able to break free of the grip of the oligarchs. Many thanks to Michael Vaughan for giving us that account of Indonesia's modern history. You can read some of his articles about Indonesia on the Jacobin website. 